We are working through the Psalms of Ascent, Psalms 120 through 134, week by week. Uh, and I, we have Psalm 121 this morning. Since it's not printed for you, I'm going to read it uh, and then pray, and then we'll reflect on it together. This is Psalm 121. I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. Father, we thank you that you have not left us without written and spoken testimony to your presence and to your activity in the world and to your love for us. Would this next bit of time be productive for each one of us? By your spirit, would you give each person here, wherever they are in their faith or lack of faith, give them a word from you, a nudge from your spirit to be encouraged and to embrace you more fully that they might embrace their fullest and deepest self and purpose. We thank you for this time and use it, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, so it is Father's Day. I was reflecting on, you know, family stuff. My family, if you have an iPhone, you know you have a group thread text and you can name the group thread. Uh, Our family's group thread is called Galt Adventures Incorporated. I started that some year ago, and anytime someone sends a cat picture, I'm like, nope, that has to go live on the cat lady's thread. Uh, it's, it's gotta, you can't just like update us on stuff. It has to be something cool that you're doing. And this is our main thread. Uh, our family, we have a culture of loving to go on adventures together and to travel, to kind of share with one another these wild and wonderful journeys that we go on in life and things that we encounter. We love to go on these sort of adventures when we travel especially and take record of it, uh, where we're going somewhere to have an authentic sort of travel experience, especially. I always take us on weird, uh, unknown, sort of non-touristy versions uh, of adventures. I was reflecting, though, this week, and my kids can probably give testimony, that we could rename that thread the Galt Misadventures, Inc. uh, thread, because inevitably we're going to encounter some sort of troubles on the journeys and the travels that we go on together. The one sort of pedestrian one that, uh, that probably happens to all of you, but it seems to have happened to us more than usual, uh, which may be because we were always, we never had a car for, I guess, 13 years of the kid's life here in New York, and we would borrow people's leftover cars I didn't really want. Uh, I rented from a place called Rent-A-Rec once on vacation, uh, and then finally I decided to buy a car. I got a 1985 Volkswagen van again, and for all of these reasons, uh, about a third of our trips seemed to involve vehicles breaking down and us sitting there on the side of the road. Which coincidentally reminded me of most of my trips with my dad, because he insisted on old beater vans that he could fix himself, and so we were often on the side of the road on our journeys. Thinking of my dad, I also thought about misadventures. He was pretty good with the misadventures. Uh, One of the most infamous ones uh, was my stepmom is from Shimokin, Pennsylvania, a small coal mining town, and we thought it would be really fun, my dad thought it would be really fun for us to go to this river he'd noticed that came down from the hills outside of Shemokin and came right down into the little Shemokin town, kind of right under the little pedestrian bridges. And so we went up there and got dropped off and took inner tubes. And he was like, 
We're going to be the first people in the history of Jamokin, Pennsylvania to inner tube into this town. And it'll go down in infamy, which it did. they put a plaque up for us the day the Galt Boys came into town. So we get on this inner tube and we're going down and it's fun. It's fine, you know. We're going down. He's telling us all we're going to, you know, they're going to have a parade for us when we get there. And then about halfway down this journey, stranded in the middle of nowhere in the hill, we see a giant culvert pipe with a let's call it chocolate milk colored uh, water just pouring out of the culvert pipe. We realized soon that it was not mud, uh, chuckles as they say, it was not mud, uh, it was something else entirely. And when we got there, we were not only brown ourselves, but we snuck out to make sure no one in town could see what we had done. There was a reason no one had ever intertubed into Shemokin, Pennsylvania. Lots of things like this, getting lost in the woods, getting lost in the ocean, all these sorts of different things. See, this is the kind of misadventures that the Galt family likes to go on. Now, most of you, being sane, probably try to minimize uh, hardship and suffering on your travels and your vacations. Maybe you would enjoy our cat lady's thread more than our Galt Adventures one. You know, we spend all this time. If we're going to go do something, if you can afford to save up and go on a vacation or just take a day off here in the city and go out to Rockaway or whatever you're going to do, you're trying to avoid suffering. Anything that reminds you of your problems and your pain at home, you want to avoid fighting or conflict, any kind of troubles. This is why I gave up all of my dignity and beauty as a human being last year and took us on a proper vacation and I took my family on a cruise where we didn't have to worry about anything. Um, maybe that's how you like to travel. You like to do something that's like a full commitment to the tourist experience where you're just going to be taken care of and nothing can go wrong. But even there, right? Even there, the email still gets through. You've paid a lot and you've planned for perfection. The electricity goes out. Some weird insect stings you. The locals are rude. It's bad weather. You get sick. Or there's just too many, too large people singing Jimmy Buffett around the pool. So you can get frustrated when this happens, but maybe you try to focus a little bit, focus on the good, keep going. Just to minimize the pain, escape real life, and get as much joy and rest as you can from your travel. I think that we often think about life this way. That is, we approach life as if we were consummate consumers, uh, the perfect tourists. How can I get as much pain and suffering out of my life as possible and have as much rest and joy and comfort as can be? We also do this, if you are a religious person or a person of faith of any sort, in our approach to spirituality and to religion, that we're hoping it can help us to minimize the pain and suffering in our life and to find the way to prosper and to be well and to not have any problems. I won't really go into it, but I reflected on this a lot. I converted at 17 years old, so I had enough life to know what life was like not being a person who believed in Jesus or tried to follow him in my life. And I realized now in hindsight that there were many, many reasons I was attracted to Jesus, but at least one of them I didn't realize. It stuck with me for a long time and to this day is that I kind of thought Christianity was going to be this way to avoid suffering. You know, it would insulate me from harm. It would give me insurance if something went really wrong. You know, there it was. It was I didn't have any instructions for life. And someone walked in and was like, here's all the manual for a nice, good, moral life. And you won't experience things like poverty or, 
you know, um, self-hatred or all these different kinds of things that might happen if you were just making it up on your own as you went. And that was compelling. And there's some truth to all these things, of course. But the problem with treating life as a tourist, treating spirituality as a tourist, is of course that we can't escape pain and suffering. We have been in a new sermon series just for a couple weeks in which we're going to say over and over again that we think the best way to approach your life and then of your spiritual life as well is not as a series of transactions or curated experiences like a tourist where I can just take the bits I like and get rid of the bad parts I don't like. I can choose to go on this trip or not. I can pay for the ticket or not do it. That instead life is a pilgrimage. It's meant to be a pilgrimage. And that is something like travel. It is definitely an adventure. It is a journey, a trip. But it's got a sacred destination, not just a nice place to go and relax and retreat, but a sacred destination. That faith is a pilgrimage toward a journey. And that journey, or sort toward a destination, that destination is God's shalom. His universal flourishing of all things where God is all in all, all of creation is taken care of and stewarded and cultivated and blessed and all human beings are reconciled and in peace together. This is a picture of shalom in the Bible. And we've been told through this that the life of faith is meant to be a pilgrimage towards shalom, that that's actually the true and deepest purpose of your life, whatever you're doing for work, whatever relationships you're in or wherever you live, that the deepest purpose of your life is to participate, to make your choices, to make your steps toward this picture and promise of shalom. And the Psalms of Ascent are here, this little playlist for pilgrimage. I told you a couple weeks ago when I took my kids on the Pacific Coast Highway of California, I spent a lot of time getting the Cali playlist ready and had all the greats, you know, all the way from the Eagles, all the way up to Snoop Dogg and in between. We put all the Cali people on the playlist so that we could immerse in the experience and learn as we go and prepare ourselves. And that's what these Psalms do for us. They teach us how to be people on pilgrimage towards God, God's shalom. Last week we saw Psalm 120. We saw that if you want to start pilgrimage, it just starts with looking where you're dwelling, where you're content, where you're settled, and nurturing a holy discontent, that sense in you that is like, isn't there more to life? something more, to allow that actually voice to be heard, to sit with it, even when it's uncomfortable, so much so that it gets you up and moving, setting out the door to look for something new and deeper and more fulfilling. That's where you have to start the journey. If you're content and settled where you are and just putting up a fence around you, make sure no one takes what's yours, then you're not going to move in pilgrimage. You have to long for something that's not quite here yet. And then immediately... You set foot on the path, and the first psalm that we come to on the path is Psalm 121 today. And it speaks immediately about what to do when there's trouble. When you thought you were setting out for an adventure, but it's a misadventure. When you thought it was going to go really swimmingly and amazingly, and people would ticker tape, you know, throw ticker tape for you, and instead you find yourself covered in who knows what. I guess we did know what, covered in bad things. See, the playlist for pilgrimage is here to help us and teach us and to give us words that in life, in the journey of faith, even the hard parts belong. They're not to be paid for to curate the experience to get them out of there. That instead, when you stumble, when you're hungry, when 
someone rejects you, that these things are a part of the journey that is there to shape you, to make you different, to shape who you are as you become a person prepared for God's shalom. And so we all know you, you have plans, you set out, whether the life of faith or some other endeavor, you start and you hit something hard. Something goes wrong. What do you do? If you're a person of faith, what do you do? What do you start thinking? I've been following you, God. I've been doing all the right things. I try to put, implement your practices. She won't call me back. I didn't get into that school. The doctor gave me a bad report. What things start going in your head? I start thinking, man, this isn't what I signed up for. I thought Christianity was going to make my life more rich and abundant. See, but this psalm helps to prepare us and to give us words on the road that right at the beginning, he says, he is not necessarily going to shield us from all hardship or from all pain or loss or challenge or hurt. We're going to bleed like everyone else on this journey of faith. Perhaps sometimes even more. Because as you become a pilgrim, your heart opens up to others. It opens up to what God is doing and how far short we are of that destination. And you start to have your heart broken a little bit with compassion. So what do you do? Verse 1 says, this is what you're to sing. I lift up my eyes to the hills. To the high place. See, we all look up in times of trouble, don't we? Tall things tend to signify power and a nice vantage point, so omniscience, fortress towers, mountains, satellites. Or here down on the ground in trouble, maybe it's an umbrella or a helmet or scaffolding, a flag on a hill, jets in the sky coming to save us. We look up when we feel exposed or in trouble. For the psalmist who wrote this, there was a pantheon of possible would-be saviors, and they were up on the hills. They were gods like Asherah and Baal. So when they set out for pilgrimage, these pilgrims, by the way, these psalms, just to remind you, are going up to the great festivals, and Jerusalem is a city up on a hill, and so they're mostly going up a hill. That's why they're the psalms of us, and they're singing these songs as they go up to the great festivals three times a year, Passover and the rest. And they're singing these songs, and they say, I just set out, and I lift my eyes up to the hills up there. I see my destination. But they wouldn't have just seen Jerusalem. They wouldn't have only seen hills and a high place where they were going up to worship and to rest. They would have also seen all the other temples. Because at this time, Israel was flooded with people worshiping false gods, worshiping idols. And most of their shrines were up on hilltops. And so you would go up there, you would worship. These shrines would lure you to engage in acts of worship that would enhance the fertility of your land or just make you feel good or protect you from evil. You could get protections and spells and little amulets to protect you from all the various perils of the road. If you feared the sun's heat, you can go to the sun priest and pray for protection against the sun god and so on and so forth. And so... They're asking the questions, where is my help on this journey going to come from? From them? From that one? From this one? When I encounter pain, what's going to protect me? 
From where does my help come is the question. I lift my eyes up to the hills. From where does my help come? And that's a good question for you when you encounter difficulty and struggles. Where will your, your help come from? This is an important question. How we answer matters. When you encounter trouble and you're afraid of what might happen to you in your life, do you run to a strong man or woman in politics? If you just pick the right, right political tribe and the right culture, I mean, get it back and protect it through laws and force, then, then we'll be safe. Do you run to some religious holy huddle or withdraw from the world and just keep our heads down until this passes? Are you, like most of us, a radical individualist in the West and you're just working on crafting your ego and your little self-identity and your reputation and how you put it out there? Is it success, accomplishment, power, money? I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where is my help coming? Verse 2 would have us sing my help. I don't know about all the rest, but my help comes from the Lord, from Yahweh. Yahweh, who made heaven and earth, who made everything that I am about to encounter. What do we do when it all goes wrong? I would suggest, and this is just a little bit of an aside, but I would suggest that, yes, in electoral politics, but also in personality, there are kind of two ways that people go when they're encountering trouble and they're afraid, and one you might broadly call the conservative impulse. The speech goes something like this. Hey, guys, let's go back, man. <laughs> let's return. We had it good on that last bend. You remember when we were out there? That was great. I don't like how it's looking up there ahead. I see some storms on the horizon. This could all go wrong. In fact, I'm not sure I trust the guy leading the pack up there. Do you remember we had cucumbers back in Egypt, back when we were in slavery? I, I don't know. Let's go. I also, I'm not sure I like that group on the edge. It seems like they keep trying to get us off the path into those trees filled with fruit, but also those trees might have jaguars in them, right? This is kind of the conservative impulse. Let's go back. Let's be afraid. But see, the problem is we can never go back again, not really. Time moves forward. The journey moves forward. We are meant to be changed, to mature, to move from glory to glory, even if we return to similar places. The progressive impulse is something like this. This isn't moving quickly enough for me. We got a bunch of lollygaggers. We need to sprint. There's too many limpers, too many slow walkers. Furthermore, I don't know if I trust that guy leading. What about this path? <laughs> that looks more sunny. If a few of us could team up, I bet we could set up paradise right over there and escape some of these regressive idiots and all of this suffering on the path. But see, the only way to shalom is with Jesus. And Jesus walks us through a cross. It also means he's going after a flock that we heard. He's going to leave the 99 to get the one. He's going to bring them all. He's got sheep that he cares about that are hurting. And he wants to gather them. And he's gathered his church to go and help gather them. And that means we have to wait on his timing and be a part of his mission. Trusting in his plan, not our own wisdom or human endeavors. Where is my help? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. My help. He made all the things, all the hilltops, the sun, the moon, the desert, the stones, the waters of 
life. And Yahweh, my help comes from Yahweh. This is the word used here is not just the Lord, like we, that word is also sometimes an unhelpful translation. It always makes us think like a Lord, a king, some kind of overlord. But really, when he gave the name Yahweh, when it shows in all caps in most of your translations, it's his personal name. He says, hey, the whole world knows me as the Lord, the King of kings, the Almighty, but you're my people. I want you to know me as Yahweh. That's my personal name. That's my covenant name. That's the family name you can call me by so I can hear and run to you. And so the psalmist is using that. My help comes from Yahweh. He also made heaven and earth, and he is near to me. And so we can lift up our eyes to the hills all around us. We can chase whatever newest trend is to help us in life and to craft a perfect little life free of suffering, but I'm telling you ahead of time, it's all false. We need the discipline of the psalmist to yank our attention back to the one true God who alone can watch over us, because this God loves us. This God has our best interest at heart. He has all the grace needed to forgive us when we walk off the path. And he has all the strength and wisdom and power to lead us through whatever we face. That's what he tells us next. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he's shaking. Listen, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. We might stub our toe. We might get blisters or slip. We'll get tired for sure, but he won't let your foot be moved. That image is to slip so that you fall down the path and permanently injure yourself. He won't let your foot be moved like that. Why? Because he is watching you and he never sleeps. The creator is always awake. He'll never doze or sleep. See, in one of these, I'm going to give you a little illustration instead of reading the whole passage. One of these great passages in the book of Kings is the showdown between one of Yahweh's prophets, Elijah, and then the prophets who were numerous, hundreds of them, of Baal, this other god. And everyone was running after Baal. Baal's going to answer it, and this Yahweh seems to be quiet and not doing anything. And so they get together, and they, Elijah, being curmudgeonly and awesome, decides to have a big contest. Let's Let's put two altars and whichever God brings down fire is the real God. And we'll choose this day to serve that God, all of us. Let's do it. Bring Israel. We're going to watch this contest between the hundreds of priests of Baal and me. And of course, the hundreds of priests of Baal do all sorts of things. I'm going to read it to you in a second how it reacts. Elijah just dumps water and all sorts of other things to sabotage his flame. And at the end, or to his potential fire. By the end, of course, fire comes down uh, on Elijah's and proves the, the Baal prophets to be false. But here's what happened in the meantime. Elijah says, let's come. Let's see who answers. Which God? They call upon the God. And the priests of Baal, it says, took the bull that was given them. They prepared it. They called upon the name of Baal from morning till noon, saying, oh, Baal, answer us. But there was no voice. And no one answered. I'm trying to ponder what this playlist means for our sermon right now. Can't work that in, I don't think. From morning till noon, they screamed, oh, Baal, answer us. But there was no voice, and no one answered. They limped around the altar they'd made, and at noon, Elijah mocked them, saying, Cry aloud. He's a god. He must be musing, or perhaps he's relieving himself. Maybe he's on a journey. Perhaps he's asleep and must be awakened. And they cried aloud and cut themselves after their own custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out. And as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering. But there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. 
I think so many of us think that we have to yell out for God or get his attention through moral perfection or perhaps perform the religious equivalent of cutting ourselves and bleeding by denying all of our desires or show him how committed we are through glamorous sacrifice. And when we can't audibly hear him or feel him or see his hand in the events of our lives, we often just believe that he's asleep. When my twins were born, they were about to turn 19. When they were born, they were nine weeks premature, and they spent six weeks in the hospital. And in the first couple weeks, we weren't sure they were going to make it. My wife and I sang this song, a musical setting of this song, every day. Because we had to go home and trust that those nurses would never take their eyes off of my kids while we were sleeping. And this psalm was the only thing that could help us to sleep, to believe that God himself was watching, that because he never sleeps, my twins would be okay and we would be okay and we could sleep because he never sleeps on you. I don't want you to hear that. The Lord never sleeps on you. In fact, it says the Lord is your keeper, he's your shade at your right hand. The sun won't strike you by day, neither will the moon at nighttime. The Lord will keep you from every evil. He will keep your life. He's a keeper, he's a shade. He protects from sunstroke and moonstroke and all evil, everything on the road that we're terrified of. He will keep you safe. Again, I need you to hear the promise of the psalm, as Eugene Peterson says, is not that we will never have trouble that, or never have injury or illness or accident. It's that nothing we encounter will ever be able to become an evil power over us. It will never be able to dislodge us from the God who keeps us and is our shade and is at our right hand. It has no power to separate you from God. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ, Paul asked. Any tribulation, any distress, any persecution? No, I'm convinced that neither death nor life nor height nor death or anything else in the whole world can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Someone has said, all the water and all the oceans cannot sink a ship unless it gets inside that ship. The world can do its worst to you, but if you have God's love in your heart, none of those things can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus, no matter what you face. And so we don't have to let fear drive us or fear of hardship. We don't have to let any of our fear get into our hearts and make us worry that God doesn't love us. He's going to guard you from every evil. The last verse says, the Lord will keep your going out and your coming in. You're going up to the festival and you're going to go home from the festival. He's going to keep you as you go out. As you go out to the fields and work and come home again, he's going to keep you. As you sit and make dinner for your family and then go to sleep, he is going to keep you forever more. And this shows the timing. It's never going to end. How long is he going to watch you and take care of you and protect you and make sure nothing turns into an evil for you? He's going to do it forever. From this time forth, right now, and forevermore, he will always be with you on pilgrimage. Many people used to sing Psalm 121, or, or recite it, at the beginning of a journey. They'd say, well, hey, we're going to drive cross country. Let's recite Psalm 121 as a prayer before we go. It's known as the traveler's song. Again, the Christian life is going to God. In going to God, Christians travel the same ground that everyone else walks on. 
These are the words of Peterson. Breathe the same air, drink the same water, shop in the same stores, read the same newspapers. Citizens of some of the same governments pay the same price for groceries and gasoline. Fear the same dangers, subject to the same pressures, get the same distresses, are buried eventually in the same ground. The difference, he says, is that each step we walk, each breath we breathe, we know we are preserved by God, accompanied by God, ruled by God. Therefore, no matter what doubts we endure or what accidents we experience, the Lord will guard us from every evil. He guards our very life. The Lord answered our prayer for our twins when they were in the NICU, but he certainly hasn't answered all of my prayers. He certainly hasn't protected me from a lot of the suffering I wish he would protect me from. If I can promise you anything is that you will probably face more hard times on your road. You may even lose your way. And at that moment, you might begin to despair or to give up or to look to help in the many other things besides God himself, but may that not be true of you. May you believe that he's with you, that he's your ever-present presence and help in times of need. Will you cry out for help, as the psalmist did, and know that he hears you? Cry out this Psalm 121. I'm hoping that you'll memorize each of these psalms each week. That as we, After we hear it, we'll spend all week reading them at home. You can do this, and now as a Christian, you can do this. It's even better, because as Jesus is walking you down the path... You see that he's gone ahead, and when you lift up your eyes to a hill, you don't just see Yahweh, who's revealed himself to you kindly and brought Israel out of Egypt. Instead, you see the God who's gone ahead as Jesus and stands at the top of a hill with his hands on a cross, taking all of our suffering, all of our pain, all of our hardship, all of our loss and death and conflict and waywardness into his own flesh that we might know that the God who is in charge is the God who loves us to the end, loves us to death. And so we don't have to fear his company, his care, his compassion, his presence, and his ability to get us through his cross to the shalom that waits us if we will just continue pilgrimage even in hard times. He is your help in all times. May you trust in him on this journey of faith this day, this week, and forevermore. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit.